Today we continue our summer sermon series entitled Preaching Christ. This morning we examine a specific genre of scripture called parables. Parables are not unique to Jesus in the sense that he was the only rabbi to use them. No, there were many Jewish rabbis that would teach and preach in parables. But Jesus is unique in that he used parables frequently. In the Gospels, there are over 40 parables. They're recorded for us in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Not a one parable is found in the Gospel of John. These 40 parables constitute over half of the teaching passages of Jesus. What is a parable, you ask? Well, it's not an illustration. It's not merely a fable. You've probably been told what I've been taught, that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. That's not a bad definition of a parable. It is a story, a story told by Jesus to illustrate an eternal truth. The word parable is a compound Greek word, para and balo. Para means alongside, balo means to throw. So Jesus used parables as stories that were thrown alongside real life. The interesting thing about the parables of Jesus is that each one is jolting. Each one is shocking. Every one is surprising. The parables of Jesus do not make things easier. No, they make things more complicated. It doesn't simplify life. It seems to intensify life. It was Al Mohler who said that the parables of Jesus are like hand grenades. They are explosive. It was Timothy George who said that the parables of Jesus teach us how to live in the kingdom of God. He went on to say that these parables show us what it is to be in the kingdom. And God's kingdom is not a kingdom of grabs, but a kingdom of grace. It's not a kingdom that shows us what we can take, but it's a kingdom that shows us what we receive and then in turn what we give. It's one of these splendid, well-spun stories of the Savior that we give our attention this morning. It's one of the parables that may not be as popular. It's tucked away in Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 to 14. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, I invite you to stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Matthew chapter 22, I'll begin reading at verse 1, I'll conclude at verse 14. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, tell those who've been invited that I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention. And went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, 
But those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guest, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot, throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are invited, but few are chosen. Heavenly Father, we pray that you open up our eyes so that we may see. Open our hearts so that we may believe. Open our minds so that we may understand your parable. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. The story I just read for you was told by Jesus in the very last week of his life. There was a sense of urgency in his demeanor. Jesus had already entered the sacred city of Jerusalem for the last time of his life to the thunderous applause of the crowd, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus had already ransacked the temple, overturning all of the tables and driving out all those dirty, underhanded money changers. Jesus had already been asked the question, by what authority do you do these things? By what authority do you preach and teach these lessons? Jesus told the religious crowd that day three parables. They're strung together like beautiful pearls on a string. The the story that I read for you is the third of three consecutive parables. All three of these parables seem to drive home the same point. They seem to speak about entrance into the kingdom of God. That if you are going to enter the kingdom of God, you've got to accept the rule of Christ in your life. To accept the rule of Christ is to be accepted into the kingdom of God. To reject the rule of Christ is to be rejected out of the kingdom of God. Like a carpenter who can drive a nail with three swift swings of a hammer, so Jesus drives home his point with three swift parables. The first of these three are written for us in Matthew chapter 21, beginning at verse 28. Jesus said there was a father who had two sons. Now before your mind races to Luke chapter 15 about the story of the prodigal son, this is not the same parable. Jesus said there was a father who had two sons. He went to one of his sons and said, go work in my vineyard. The son said, I certainly will not. And then later he changed his mind and he went. The father went to the second son, giving the same instruction, go work in my vineyard. And the second son said, absolutely, I will. But then he never got around to it and he never went. And Jesus asked the religious crowd, which of these two sons did what the father asked him to do? The answer, the first one. And Jesus then said, Tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. 
Now, I don't have to tell you that the religious crowd of the first century, which was made up of Pharisees and Sadducees, did not appreciate Jesus saying that tax collectors and prostitutes were going into the kingdom of God ahead of them. They didn't like for tax collectors and prostitutes to be ahead of them in anything. And they knew that Jesus had just indicted them, indicted them as the son who said that they would enter uh, the kingdom and work in the vineyard, but then refused to do it. And then Jesus had the audacity to say that tax collectors and prostitutes are also children of God and that they too have been given the invitation to enter God's kingdom. And at first they rejected it, but then they received it because Jesus said they followed and listened to the message of John the Baptist, which was giving them a way of righteousness that would lead to repentance and belief in Jesus the Christ. Oh, after that first parable, the religious leaders in the crowd, they were agitated. They were on the edge of their seats. They were listening quite carefully to what Jesus was saying. And then Jesus said, if you missed the point the first time, let me tell you a second story and drive home the point even further. He used the same type of backdrop when in the second parable, Jesus said there was a landowner who had a vineyard. Incidentally, any time in Jesus' parables when he speaks about the vineyard, that is an analogy to Israel. And here in this second parable that's told at the very end of Matthew chapter 21, Jesus said there was a landowner who had a vineyard. He provided everything for that vineyard to be prosperous and effective. He planted the vineyard. He built up a wall. He dug a wine press. He even constructed a watchtower. He entrusted the vineyard to tenants. And at the end of the season, the landowner sent some of his servants to the vineyard to receive from those tenant farmers the the share that was deserving of the landowner. When those tenant farmers saw that some of the servants of the landowner were coming, they said, we don't want to give the landowner anything. We're the ones who worked in the vineyard. So they mistreated the servants of the landowner. Oh, they beat the one, they killed a second, they stoned a third. When word of this got back to the landowner, he said, I will send my son. Certainly, they'll respect him. And so the landowner sent his son into the vineyard. Let me just take a time out just for a second. Isn't it obvious that Jesus is talking about himself? He is the son of the landowner who was sent into the vineyard and Jesus came to earth. And just as, uh, just as in Jesus' story, the way they treated the son of a landowner is the very same way that the religious elite were treating Jesus, the very son of God. So the son of the landowner went into the vineyard. And when the tenant farmers looked over the horizon and realized that that was the son of the landowner coming their way, they got together and they said to themselves, let's kill the son and we will receive his inheritance and it will all be ours. So they seized the son. They beat him. They threw him outside of the vineyard and they killed him. Jesus asked the religious crowd, what then should the landowner do? And they responded as if one voice. Bring to a wretched end all of those wretched individuals. 
and give the vineyard to other tenant farmers. And Jesus looked at them and said, have you not read in Psalms, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And then Jesus locking eyes with all of those Pharisees and Sadducees and religious elite in the crowd that day, Jesus said, I am taking the kingdom away from you and giving it to others who will produce its fruit. Friend, let me tell you, if, if those religious individuals were agitated after the first story, they are enraged after the second story. They know that Jesus has just indicted them as outsiders and that Jesus was saying that they, that they were not going to be in the kingdom of God because they had rejected the son of the landowner and they were ready to seize Jesus, arrest him and kill him on the spot. But they feared the rest of the crowd. And because others in the crowd thought Jesus to be a mighty prophet, they began to shrink back. Jesus then proceeded to tell the third story, which is the one that I read in your hearing. Beginning in Matthew chapter 22, I realized there's a chapter break between the second story and the third story, but Jesus told them one after another after another. Jesus told them another parable. This time he changed up the scenario a bit. He said there was a king who wanted to prepare a wedding banquet for his son. Now, like in this day, in those days, weddings were big business. All parents I know want the wedding of their children to be picture perfect. Want everything to go without a hitch. And if you've ever been involved in preparing a wedding you know how much work that is you know the effort that must be put in you know the anxiety that is there within you as you prepare the wedding and you know how much money it takes can I get an amen I thought I'd get a few more amens but that's okay if you know what it is to to prepare an effective uh, wedding then you know all the work and all the effort in this story there was a king who was preparing a wedding for his son. And this king was not reserving any of the responsibilities to anybody else. He was going to do it himself. It was going to be lavish. It was going to be posh. It was going to be perfect. It was going to be extravagant. It was going to be celebratory. It was customary in those days that whenever a royal son was to get married, the palace would issue invitations to the social elite of the nation, the dignitaries residing within the country, and also that king would invite other people, other royalty from the surrounding nations. The king would send a hand-delivered invitation to every person that was invited, and the king would send it months in advance. It could be likened to a save-the-date card. Sometimes you receive a save-the-date card and you realize that something significant is going to happen a few months down the road. Put it on your calendar. Uh, you don't want to miss it. You've been invited. You've got to save the date. In the very same way, that's how the king would have operated. He would have sent a save-the-date, hand-delivered card to all those on the invited list. And then, 
on the day of the wedding, when all the preparations had been made, a second invitation would have been sent. Once again, hand-delivered. Once again, uh, given to all those who had been previously invited to tell them, today's the day. In case you've missed it, all the preparations have been made and everything is ready for you to come and enjoy not only the service, but the festivities. We want you to come because all the preparations have been made. Today is a day of celebration. We want you to come. It's at this second invitation that Jesus picks up the story. And Jesus says that the king sent his servants to all those who had been invited. They've already received the save the date card. And now it's the day of the wedding. It's time for the banquet festivities to commence. And the king sends the invitation to all those who had been invited and they refused to come. Now, wait a minute. That sounds odd. Because to refuse the gracious invitation of benevolent king is not only a social slap in the face, but it's dangerous and downright deadly. It's taking your own life into your own hands. Nobody would ever reject the invitation of a king. If the king invited you to come to the palace, then you regarded that as a great honor. And so you would do anything to make it possible. But here in the story of Jesus, he says that the, that the king issued not one, but two invitations. And at the second invitation, the people refuse to come. He doesn't say why they refuse to come. I can only speculate three possibilities. Either number one, they were indifferent to the king. Or number two, they were hostile to the king. Or number three, they were just too busy. Either they were indifferent to the king. Maybe they lived their life as if the king didn't exist. Indifferent to him. Or maybe they were hostile to the king. Oh, they knew he existed and they didn't like him. They hated him. They hated his rules. They hated his regulations. They hated the way he governed. They hated the decisions that he had made. They were just hostile to everything the king did. They thought life would be better without the king. And then probably some were just too busy. It's not that they were indifferent to the king. Not that they hated the king. They just had too many things going on. Too many irons in the fire. Too many activities to attend to. Too many things to do. They were just too blasted busy. Regardless, they refused to come. The servants went back to the king and they said, Sir, uh, your guests have refused your second invitation. The king did something that was extraordinary. He issued a third invitation. This is extremely gracious. No king in his right mind would do this, but this king in the story of Jesus did it. He's so gracious. He's so benevolent. He's so kind. He issues a third invitation. He tells his servants, go back to them and tell them that my oxen have been butchered. My cattle have been killed. Everything is ready. The fine china is on the table. Everything is pristine. Everything is beautiful. Everything is ready for you. And I want you to come. I've invited you to come. I want you to come to the banquet of my son. The king thought that the menu might entice some of the individuals. This king had made a banquet that could feed the entire nation. He doesn't just say, I've killed an ox. He said, I've killed my oxen. He doesn't just say, I've killed a cow. He said, I've killed my cattle. 
numerous oxen, numerous cattle. I mean, everything is prepared. He's ready. He is able. He has the resources to feed everybody on the guest list. Nobody's going to go away hungry. Everybody's going to want to be there. It's going to be tremendous food. You don't want to miss it. So he sends the menu, hoping that that may entice some of those who had been invited to change their mind and to come. So the servants went out and they told the menu. They told the invited guests, this is what you can expect. It's going to be great. And the king, my king, wants you to be there. They refused. Again. One uh, went to his field and the other went to his business. Now this is just downright rude, right? And, and the rudeness of these individuals, it wasn't just reserved for city slickers. It was also country folk. It wasn't just the city slickers who went back to their businesses. It wasn't just the CEOs and the businessmen and businesswomen. It wasn't just the white collar individuals. It was also the farmers. It was also uh, the, the common country folk who had been raised with southern charm and hospitality. They know how to treat people. Even the southern folk, even, even the farmers said, no, I got to go back to my fields. One went to his field. The other went to his business. Once again, why did they do that? I think for one of three reasons. Either they were indifferent to the king or they were hostile to the king they were just too busy, too many things to do. Those that remained, they seized the servants and killed them. The servants understood, we can't go back empty-handed. So they insisted, their insistence was met with ridicule. They persisted in pleading with them to come. And their persistence was met with persecution. Some of those People who had been invited, they took hold of the servants of the king. They brutally beat them and they killed them. When this got back to the king, he was enraged. Listen, the king is patient, but he's not a pushover. So the king responded. He sent his army and the army destroyed those murderers and torched those villages. Nobody could blame the king. Nobody was saying that the king just flew off at the handle. Nobody was blaming the king as being uh, arrogant and obnoxious. No, the king had been gracious. He had sent not one or two, but three invitations. He had sent more invitations than anybody else would have sent. He had given them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, and they still refused. And then, by their defiance, they killed the servants of the king. The king said, enough is enough. And he retaliated. And in his retaliation, he was just. He didn't do anything wrong. The king then looked at his other servants who were still remaining. And he said, the banquet's ready. The food has been prepared. My son is going to get married today. And we're going to celebrate. So I want you to go to every corner Every alley. I want you to go anywhere and everywhere. And I want you to get anybody and everybody. So the servants went out and they got some anybodies and they got some everybodies. You know what happens when you get some innies and everys? You know what happens when you get anybody and everybody? You get both the good and the bad. You get both the 
those who have a moral compass and those who are just sheer reprobates. You get the good and the bad. You get the royal and you get the rough, the riffraff. You get every type of person. If you're going for the anybody's and everybody's, then you just might get anybody and everybody. That's precisely what happens. The servants go out. They go to every street corner. The king has invited you to come. The banquet is ready. The son is getting married today. And the king wants you to come to his party. And so anybody and everybody showed up. Jesus said that the banquet hall was filled with guests. Now, if the story ended right there, you may think to yourself, well, the point that Jesus is making is that if you're going to enter God's kingdom, you just got to show up. I mean, if you're going to enter the kingdom of God, all you have to do is accept the invitation that's been extended to anybody and everybody and just show up. Up until now, the story's not too hard to understand, is it? The king represents God. The son represents Jesus. The servants represent the prophets. Those who had been invited, those initially on the guest list, those are the people of Israel. But the good old boys and the not so good old boys, the good and bad riffraff of society that finally get in, those are the Gentiles. So if the story ended at verse 10, you would think to yourself, well, the takeaway is this. If you're going to enter God's kingdom, if you're going to enter his rule and reign in your life, all you have to do is show up. Just show up. He'll let anybody in. Just show up. He'll let everybody in. He'll let anybody and everybody come into his banquet hall in his kingdom. And if the story ended in verse 10, I think we could say that all Jesus wants is for you to show up. But the story doesn't end in verse 10, does it? Here comes the hand grenade. Here comes the jolting, abrasive part of the story. Verse 11. The king went into the palace hall and he saw somebody there who wasn't wearing wedding clothes. I'm assuming he was wearing something. He was probably just wearing his own duds, probably just wearing his old rags, his own clothes, just what he had in the closet. But he wasn't wearing proper wedding attire. The king went up to him and said, friend, that sounds nice, doesn't it? Friend, how did you get in here without wearing wedding clothes? How did you get past my servants at the door? How are you here in this banquet hall at the palace wearing that? How did you get in here not wearing wedding clothes? That man was speechless. It means he was tongue-tied. He didn't know what to say. He couldn't even come up with a good lie. Most of us could come up with some story, some lie, couldn't we? We could say, well, my tuxedo is at the cleaners and it's not available till Tuesday. Or we would uh, say, uh, listen, don't judge me. This is the best I've got. I mean, don't judge me. Who do you think you are? I know you're the king, but still, this is the best I've got. Don't judge me. Oh, but this individual, he doesn't say anything. He's speechless. He doesn't know what to say. So then the king calls for a couple of his servants, bind this man hand and foot, throw him into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
In the parables of Jesus, whenever he refers to the darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth, that's a reference to hell. So the king says, bind this man, throw him out to an eternal place of condemnation. Many are invited, but few are chosen. You get to the end of verse 14, and the question you have is the same question the religious establishment had in the first century. What is up with this king? He seems pretty superficial, doesn't he? I mean, on the one hand, he is angry because his palace hall is not full. And then when they go out and they get the anybody's and the everybody's and people uh, fill the banquet hall, then he's upset because somebody got in not wearing a suit and tie. Can you get more superficial than that? Are you going to kick somebody out just because they're not wearing the right stuff? Because they don't have the right suit on? Because they're not wearing the right tie? Because they don't have the right clothes on? Are you going to kick them out from the party? Are you kidding me? Is this king ever happy and if you're not careful you'll walk away from this parable thinking that there's something wrong with the king but I came this morning to tell you that there ain't nothing wrong with the king there's nothing wrong with the king of kings and lord of lords there are two things two facts that we have to remember when understanding this story the first fact is this That if the king in those days invited you to the banquet, he was prepared to clothe you. If he invited you, he had the resources not just to feed you, but he had the resources to clothe you appropriately. When the king asked this man, friend, how did you get in here without wearing proper wedding attire? What he's saying is, how did you get past anybody? Because when anybody saw you trying to come in in that, they would have quickly said, here are the gifts of the king, the proper wedding clothes that the king wants you to wear. So how did you get in here wearing that and not wearing what I have provided you? It's in that moment that this individual is tongue-tied. He doesn't know what to say because he has no excuse. The only thing I can come up with is this. The only way that an individual could come into the palace and go through the servants and not take the wedding clothes is because that person believed he didn't need the king's garments. And friends, that's a dangerous place to be. To be invited to the party and think that you are good enough to show up on your own merit. So the first fact to understand is that if the king invited you to come to the party, he was prepared to clothe you for the party. The second fact is this, that the king would have been the first one served in the meal. He would have enjoyed his meal in a separate room. When he had finished his meal, then the servants would have given the food to the other invited guests. And then the king would have gotten up. He would have gone into uh, the palace hall, into the banquet hall to mingle with all of the guests. And when the king walked in to the palace hall and he began to survey the crowd, this individual who came in his own clothes stuck out like a sore thumb. And it was obvious. 
And the king went up to him and engaged him in conversation. We had no excuse. He said, cast him out. It's important for us to remember that this imagery of godly garments is a common one in the New Testament. This imagery of godly garments is extremely common in the New Testament. It's the Apostle Paul who says in Colossians chapter 3, But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the image of its creator. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these things, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Throughout the New Testament, whenever the Apostle Paul says, take off some things and put on some things, the things we take off is sin. The things we put on is the innocent robes of righteousness of Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, the apostle just simply says to, uh, to put on humility, to put on, clothe yourselves with humility. And where does that humility come from? That humility does not come from you. That humility comes from God, who's the giver of every good and perfect gift. In Romans chapter 13, the apostle Paul says, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, do not do not give into uh, the desires of your sin. Whenever the Apostle Paul or any New Testament writer compares and contrasts what we take off and what we put on, what we take off is our sin. What we put on is the royal robe of righteousness. What we put on is the innocence that God provides for us in Jesus Christ. God, who is the King, has provided innocence in your life, righteousness for both now and forevermore in the person of Jesus Christ. And we are called and we are compelled not to stand before God in our own sinful uh, our own sinful desires but we stand before God dressed and robed in the godly garments of our Lord so here in this story when Jesus says that the king orders for this man to be kicked out what he's saying is this man is standing here in his own merit he's standing here dressed in his own sinfulness and that cannot stand in the kingdom of God every person in God's kingdom must be robed in the godly garments of the Lord so every person in that crowd must be clothed with God's compassion and God's gentleness and God's holiness. Let me try to put the cookies on the bottom shelf because I think this is the takeaway that Jesus is driving home. I am only fooling myself if I am a Christian in name only and I live and look just like the world. I am only fooling myself if I think that I am a Christian in name only and yet I live and look just like the world. Friend, we are fooling ourselves. If we call ourselves Christians and we cuss just like a lost person, 
We are fooling ourselves if we call ourselves Christians and we drink just as much and just as frequently as the reprobates. We are fooling ourselves if we call ourselves Christians and then we have a lifestyle that is in contradiction to the word and will of God. We are only fooling ourselves if we call ourselves Christians and yet we chase skirts and chase pants just like the sexually charged society in which we live. We are only fooling ourselves if we call ourselves Christian and then if we look and live just like the world. If all we are are just Christian by name only, then we are not Christians and we will stand before the king one day and he will say, how did you get in here dressed like that? How did you get in here living like that? How did you get in here looking like that? Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth because God says I have not only invited you to my banquet but I am prepared to clothe you in Christ and you are so arrogant to refuse the clothing of God and you think you can stand before him in your own doing and the king will say get out of my presence Friend, if we call ourselves a Christian and then we live and look just like the world, we are only fooling ourselves. This morning, I want you to know that I'm a servant of the king. That's who I am. And I came this morning in the one hand, to issue you an invitation into God's kingdom. If you're here today and you have never trusted Jesus as Savior, you've never embraced his rule in your life, you have never repented of sin and turned towards Christ, if if today you have never trusted Jesus, In this one hand, I extend to you an invitation because my king has sent me to you. I'm just a servant of the king. And my king has sent me to you to declare your presence is requested by the king. The king wants you to come to his banquet. And I don't know why you haven't accepted it before. Maybe you're indifferent to the king. Maybe you think that the king doesn't exist. I'm here to tell you that he does exist. Maybe you are hostile to the king. Maybe you don't even like the king. Maybe you don't like God and you don't like the church and you don't like God's people. Listen, friend, there are some days I don't like God's people, all right? Maybe this day you're not indifferent or hostile, but you're just too busy. The reason you have not embraced Jesus, the reason you have not trusted him as savior is because you think yourself to be too busy. Going back to your business and going back to your field. Friend, today I'm a servant of the king. That's all I am. And in this hand, I issue you an invitation because the king wants you to come into his kingdom. But in this other hand, to those of you who've already received the save the date card, for those of you who've already received the invitation by the king, And you know what it is to show up in this other hand? I'm just calling you to dress up 
Because you cannot stand in God's presence in your own sinfulness. So to those of you who've accepted the save the date card, but yet you're looking like the world, you're living like the culture, I'm just telling you, I've got the royal robes of Christ. Here they are, put them on. If you're trying to do a little bit more good than bad, hoping to please God, just put on the royal robes of Christ. If you're a master at hiding your sin, just put on the royal robes of Christ. If you're caught in a web of pornography and seduction, just put on the royal robes of Christ. If you are a perpetual liar or guilty of gossip or materialism dominates your life or you're a control freak where you have to manipulate every situation, every relationship to accomplish your goal, just put on the royal robes of Christ. This morning, I'm a servant of the king. And in one hand, I have an invitation. In the other hand, I have the royal robes of Christ. For those of you who've never accepted Jesus, please show up. And when you show up, know that you got to dress up in the innocence of Christ. I remember as a boy, there were times I would try to put on my dad's suit. You ever tried to do that as a young boy, maybe five, six, seven years old? Your father's suit always was too big. You kind of trip around in it because the pants are too long, the sleeves are too long, the coat was too large. Listen, some of us, when we put on the royal robes of Christ, we feel like that little six-year-old boy in our daddy's clothing. And we think to ourselves, I can't fit this. This isn't me. But yet, because of what Christ has done for you, it is you and you're going to grow into it. It is you and you're going to grow into it. Because of the holiness of Christ, that holiness is you and you're going to grow into it. That purity is you and you're going to grow into it. That morality is you and you're going to grow into it. That, uh, that desire to please the Lord is you and you're going to grow into it. So friend, please hear me today. I am just a servant of the king and the servant of the king has come to say to you the king request your presence accept the invitation or put on the royal robes of righteousness but regardless know I was sent by the king just to give you an invitation won't you accept it heavenly father we bow before you for those people here who need to receive the invitation, help today to be the day of their salvation. For other people who need to come and um, change clothing, taking off sin and putting on the innocent righteousness of a Savior, Lord, help that to happen today. Lord, help us to walk out of here dressed with the godly garments of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.